Okay, hello and welcome to another episode of Sacktown Talks. Today we have a great show for you today. We have Ash Kalra from the 27th Assembly District joining us. Ash, how's it going? Everything's going well, thank you. Um, you know, these past few weeks have been crazy with fires. Um, you know, there's been a lot of fire, you know, specifically in your area, which you normally don't experience it. Kind of, can you tell us kind of how it's been in the, yeah. I guess, the lower bay and the yeah. smoke and, and how things are doing down there? Yeah, so in the South Bay, it's been interesting because we, you know, we did actually have some impacts on the very, very eastern portion of my district in the eastern hills. All, you know, that that was the SCU lightning complex, which ended up being the second largest fire uh, that we've had over the past few weeks. But on the west side in Santa Cruz, it was also another fire. So we were just kind of caught in between. And we ordinarily already have quite a lot of air pollution because we sit in the southern portion of the valley. All right. the, the Bay Area air comes in. And so the air quality has been horrible. And I'm very grateful to the firefighters who were able to really get both fires under control. And there, there was not as much of an impact to San Jose residents, although it got scary for a while. But the smoke is still there because obviously there are hundreds of fires throughout the state. And it's just, uh, it's, it's been sad to see because one of the few things we're able to do through COVID is get outside. And right, right now, can't go outside. And so at least you shouldn't be outside too long. Yeah, no, no, it's been definitely tough having to be cooped up uh, these couple of days. It's like 2020 just keeps throwing, you know, things at us yeah. one after another. Uh, you know, I, I kind of remember my days in the South Bay. A lot of homes don't even have air conditioning, and, you know, you guys have had record heat. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of lot of exciting things going yeah. on. This, a lot of things to struggle with. Uh, no shortages. Uh, you know, I guess kind of, I guess to kind of backtrack, you know, I guess, you know, uh, back to kind of March time frame uh you know COVID-19 comes out um obviously the legislature uh, members had a lot of plans uh and then you know everyone was sent home to kind of shelter in place kind of can you give us a sense of I guess what your bill package was like back in in March and kind of I guess how it evolved to I guess the end of session <laughs> how it evolved or how it devolved uh <laughs> I, I, I mean I had um over two dozen bills that I I started the year with and um, I have six bills on the governor's desk right now. So it's actually, all things considered, uh, we still got a lot of good work done, but almost immediately um, half my bills had to be cut from the list. Uh, and and we, had, we had very little choice. Uh, now, some things did change in that uh, because of the murder of George Floyd, and, and for example, I had the Racial Justice Act, it did not get a hearing in public safety because of COVID and because of COVID impacts. Uh, but then I resurrected it um, based upon you know, the, this movement with millions of people out in the street, Black Lives Matter. And it, it really reignited some of the bills that we were already working on, but it gave it new energy. And so that is now right. on the governor's desk. Uh, so it was quite a 180 uh, from March until August in that regard. Interesting. So I guess of your six bills, how many of them, I guess, started with you at the beginning of the year and I guess how many of them, I guess, changed or, or came anew um, mm -hmm. after the COVID crisis? So out of the six bills, five of them were, in, or four of them were introduced in the beginning of the year, including the Racial Justice Act. That got reignited. Uh, and then there were a couple other bills um, that one had to do with nurses and uh, training costs that we were already looking at introducing, but certainly once COVID hit, it became a no-brainer. And then there was another one, which is AB 3216, which is another bill of mine that's gotten the most attention because it's about hotel workers having the right to get back to work. Uh, those that have been laid off when, when the industry revives, 
uh, it's the right of recall. Hotel workers, airport workers, those who uh, work in commercial uh, property, you know, janitorial services, what have you. And so that one um, was a very direct COVID-related bill. It started as a bill that not only did that, but it added uh, paid sick leave uh, as well. Uh, that, that was COVID-related sick leave, but that got cut out from the bill. As you know, as the bill moved forward, you know, amendments sometimes right. consensual, not sometimes they're forced upon you. <laughs> but you know, at the end of the day, like it's still a really important <laughs> bill that'll allow one of the one of the most hardest hit industries, these workers, the chance to go back to work. And the, we're not, you know, we're not telling hotels to hire someone they don't like. These are people that were actually working for them before COVID. We're just saying, hey, give them a shot to come back to their old job um, before you go out and hire new people. Yeah, I think that's, that's one of the interesting things that maybe not even people want to think about is San Jose has a lot of kind of convention space, a lot of hotels, a lot of in and out traffic for that kind of tech uh, mm-hmm. workspace. I guess kind of, you know, as we're all zooming from home, I guess, how has your district and that hotel industry been impacted um, mm-hmm. as you know people are coming in less and less? Well, the hotel industry right now, I mean, it's, it's clearly been hit incredibly hard, uh, as has a lot of hospitality-related industries, conventions, you know, weddings. I mean, you're, you're, you're talking about a whole slew right. uh, of different types of activity that's come to a, a, a standstill in many regards. Business travel, you know, and, and the reality is we're looking at long-term impacts. A lot of these companies are now just moving straight to work at home. Um, and, you know, we saw that, with, I think just the other day, Pinterest made a move to cancel their $70 million lease in San Francisco. Right. I think it was three or 400,000 square feet. And that's not because they have a layoff employees. It's because their employees are working from home and they're going to keep it that way. So obviously being in San Jose, capital Silicon Valley, we have a lot of remote work that's happening now. Much of it is going to remain that way. And so we have to rethink um, reimagine, I guess, is a, the popular word these days, um, of how we create our urban spaces and our office spaces in a way that um, continues to invigorate them because we're, it's not going to be the same world even once we're past COVID. Yeah, no, things have definitely changed. Um, and, you know, San Jose has always been, you know, one of the areas people talk about housing prices, uh, housing mm-hmm. being so expensive. Uh, I remember being a young undergrad at Santa Clara, uh, looking at people in those gatos and other worlds and like, man, that's just unbelievable that, you know, they found uh, technology here and then these, these homes kind of skyrocketed in price. Um, I guess, are you seeing um, a lot of people kind of moving out of San Jose now that people are Zooming um, kind of from home and looking, you know, to live further away? Are you seeing uh, maybe people from maybe up North Bay moving down more towards the South Bay? Mm-hmm. And I guess kind of what are you sensing there uh, in San Jose with kind of, you know, this new Zoom lifestyle? It's interesting because we, we were already seeing a trend of folks moving from further north to the South Bay, um, especially, and this is interesting that because I've had friends that when they're in San Francisco and they're you know, younger professionals and they're working, but then when they get married and want to have kids, they move south. <laughs> they, right. they come more into a suburban community and all that. And, and there's so many different cities and neighborhoods down here. So that's kind of been a side note of a trend. But a couple of different things are happening now with Zoom, which is a San Jose company, by the way. <laughs> it's headquartered right by Santana Row. Um, with Zoom and, and folks working from home, you're definitely seeing people uh, take the opportunity to see, okay, where else could I live? Where else, you know, where, where else you know, can I have a different kind of lifestyle? Have, be able to afford a home and to buy a home. 
Uh, we've seen this with a lot of folks from the Bay Area moving to Sacramento, for example, right? So that because they want a home and they just can't afford one here. So right. what, that, that gives that opportunity for more freedom of choosing where you live. But the other thing, which is even scarier, honestly, is those that are being evicted and those that can't afford to live here because they lost their job or they're not working the same number of hours. They literally have no choice but to leave. So it, there's a kind of two, there, there's the by choice and there's by, uh, by almost force uh, of economic force to some extent where it's really hard to live here. Uh, it's so expensive. And so we're seeing both of those things right now. Yeah, I guess one of the cool aspects uh, uh, for you is, is you actually uh, represent the district, the area that, that you grew up. Um, can you kind of talk to us, I guess, about how the neighborhood has changed, I guess, since you were uh, you know, young and grew up there and kind of what it's like now? So, yes, we moved here when I was a little kid in 1978. And even my, you know, my father got a job in Palo Alto. But even back then, as Silicon Valley was just starting to grow, it was far more expensive to live in Palo Alto to buy a home there, certainly, than in San Jose. And there were a lot of new neighborhoods being built down here in San Jose. So that's how we ended up in South San Jose. And I uh, went to public school here, Oak Grove High School. I went to elementary school right around the corner over here at Hayes. Uh, so I've definitely seen Silicon Valley kind of rise up before, uh, before our eyes over the last few decades. Because uh, there used to be a lot of farmland even around these neighborhoods yeah. we live in now. Uh, in, in fact, the home I'm living in now was an orchard when we first moved here in the late 70s. And so it's, it's a lot different. It's changed a lot. Uh, I, I think that one of the things is that because you have so many people moving here from around the country and around the world, you, you know, I've been here since 78. I mean, that's a native. For, for San Jose, if someone's been around since the late 70s, that means you've been here for a long time. You're, you're, right. you're definitely old school. Because uh, it's a newer city, right? You know, 60s and 70s when it really started to grow. Now we're the largest city in the West Coast, north of Los Angeles, over a million people. But right. it, it happened over the last two, three decades. And so you definitely have to try to dig deeper to really find the culture. We're extremely diverse. Sometimes people think tech is our only attribute, our only culture, which is just not true. But if you're not from here and you just move here to work in tech and what have you, unless you're intentional about it, you don't necessarily see the depth of what's here in San Jose. So, you know, like a lot of other urban areas, gentrification, the, the cost of living, a lot of friends I went to high school with, they can't afford to be here or live here. And so you do lose something um, when you gain, quote, success. And then you also have to wonder how you measure success by, because we have enormous income inequality. We have, you know, I, uh, represent a district that and it's definitely a tale of two valleys where we have a lot of working class families families living three four families in a home uh, in the shadows of some of the wealthiest companies on the face of the earth and and that's the contrast and that's i think about those families when i go to sacramento right no i think you have definitely one of the more interesting stories of kind of you know coming from san jose uh, going to UC Santa Barbara, somehow you're, you're one of the rare people who went to UC Santa Barbara and left. And, you know, you went to Georgetown out, out back east, got your law degree. Uh, kind of what, what brought you back uh, west, back home um, after going to Georgetown? So my plan all along was to come back to California. And that was a big factor in choosing Georgetown. I was kind of deciding between different schools. I narrowed it down to LA, New York, and D.C., and I figured like, well, you know, I really do know that I'm gonna settle in California. So let me have an East Coast experience. So I'm glad I did it. Um, it. It was cool to be in the East Coast, definitely a different vibe, 
different culture. This is the mid nineties too. So we're talking about like, you know, the peak of hip hop, like nineties hip hop, you're in the East coast. It was pretty amazing. <laughs> Biggie and Tupac feud. Yeah, exactly. The whole feud going on. It is funny though, when you mentioned that, because when you come over here, over here, if you went out to a club or a bar, or whatever, they would play East Coast music. But in the East Coast, when you went to a club, they would not play West Coast. They would like, you could request Ice Cube, you could request, you know, Snoop Dogg, who was huge at that time, or Dr. Dre. And there were a lot of DJs that refused to play West Coast music. <laughs> it was real. It was a real. Uh, it was a real beef. <laughs> So you came home for the music, huh? Yeah, definitely a part of it. You know, yeah. we had it all over here. That's that's funny. Um, and you know, I think an another interesting thing is is you know you get your law degree and you know you come back home and and you start in the public defender's office, um, and you know that's been a major passion of yours, kind of social justice, criminal justice reform. Uh, can you kind of talk to us, I guess, about your experience in the kind of being a public defender and I guess how you know society, I guess, has changed and, and seen criminals, uh, you know, from when you started in the mid nineties to, to now, it seems to be huge leaps and bounds and, and yet more work to do. No, absolutely. You know, and, and I think that's the, a lot of politicians, a lot of elected officials say, oh, I never planned on being an elected official, but, you know, but, you know, for a lot of them, they have it like mapped out since they were in high school. That wasn't the case for me. And my proof that I didn't plan on being an elected official is the fact that I was a public defender for 11 years. Like that's not exactly a normal path to elected right. office, but there's no doubt it's had the most profound impact on my service. It's the best job I've ever had. And you are right. When I started there, we're talking about, I started uh, in 97 and I worked until 2008 in the public defender's office. So we're talking about the heart of the three strikes law, the war right. on drugs. We were incarcerating people of color, poor people. And to fight against that um, was gratifying, but it was really hard. It was really emotional. It was tough. Uh, and, and now to be able to be in the legislature and actually over the last few years, not just this year, but over the last few years, as you know, passing legislation to decarcerate. As we, you know, when I was working there, we were the incarceration capital of the world. We're trying to fix that. We know that didn't make our communities safer. We know that it, 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 it is inhumane and, and dehumanized people in our own communities. So we're trying to fix it. But uh, there's no doubt that that work as, as a public defender is grounding work for me. And, and uh, I always, it, it keeps me, you know, my, my principles in check. It's who I am. I believe in justice for everyone. Uh, and it's not, a, not a, an either or. Uh, you can do it all. You can, you know, have a safe community and do it in a way that uplifts everyone. And in fact, I think that's the only way to create a truly safe community. Yeah, I know you've done some traveling and you've looked at, I guess, other, I guess, criminal justice systems and different prison systems. I guess, can you kind of talk about kind of your, your experiences in other countries and I guess mm -hmm. how they handle uh, their incarcerated folks? And I guess kind of what you've learned there that we can maybe apply here in California? Yeah, absolutely. I, I had a chance to go most, most recently um, to Norway and Finland last year. And there were a couple of different cohorts that went. Uh, one included some of the governors key staff, uh, CDCR head and all that. And so it was really good to see that everyone's trying to think about what they can do. We even had someone from the Department of Corrections go on one of the trips. And so it's important because we do have to rethink about how we treat human beings. And when I went to Norway, it was interesting. Uh, the deputy warden in giving the presentation said, 
our way of thinking is as soon as someone comes into our prison, we're already thinking, how do we make them a good neighbor? I mean, that's, it's simple, but it totally changes what you do in that prison while they're there. And these right. prisons had parks, they had trees inside. They lived in more like dormitory li lifestyle, were able to cook um, their own food. I mean, they would get, they would get like pre-set things, but they would cook it themselves. It was healthier. You know, it was that camaraderie. They felt human. And it absolutely has an impact on how they rehabilitate and who they are when they get out. And they actually end up being good neighbors, right? Their recidivism rate is dramatic. You know, and keep in mind, this all started like in Norway, for example, in the 90s, they had a huge prison problem, a prison population. So they went through this process over the last 20 years to be where they are now. Uh, and, you know, that's where we need to get. And I think with the, with the governor we have, with the legislature we have, we have the opportunity to do that, especially with millions out in the street right now paying more and more attention to our criminal justice system. I think that we need that humanity. And, and let's keep in mind, I'm not, when I say that humanity, I'm not, just, I'm not just talking about those that are incarcerated. I'm talking about those that work in the prisons, the prison guards, the corrections officers. Right. We need to think about their humanity as well because our current system you know, eats at them too. You know, and oh, so totally. in Norway, they talk to each other. The, 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 the prison guards there you know, are, are trained in social work. They sit down and have meals uh, with those who are incarcerated. It's a totally different way of thinking that lifts up the humanity of everyone involved. Right. Yeah, even our guards here, I, I think there's a statistic that says after they retire, they only live like five or six years mm -hmm. um, just because of the stress and the sad. Uh, kind of things they've, they've suffered. So it's definitely both sides of the coin. Um, that's very interesting. Um, kind of, I guess one, one big piece of legislation for you this year was AB 2542, uh, kind of the California Racial Justice Act. Um, kind of where did this bill come from and, and you know, how did you find the opportunity to do it this year? So yeah, this is one of the examples of um, kind of the COVID impact, but then the Black Lives Matter impact. So right. we, we were talking about doing it towards the end of last year. Um, and what the Racial Justice Act does, it allows those that are accused to at least make the claim that race played a role in their arrest, in the trial, uh, in the jury selection, in the conviction and sentencing. Now, no other state has this in the nation, although North Carolina and Mississippi, I believe, have it for just death penalty cases. Um, there's a Supreme Court case from the 80s that acknowledged that race exists in our system, but that unless you can show it's intentional, that you can't use it to, to ask for a new trial or to kick out a, a conviction. This case now, but they, they also said a, a state could on its own enact something that does recognize that. And that's what we're doing is that with this bill, we actually have the opportunity to recognize systemic racism in our system. And so, for example, if you have a situation where 95% of the people that are being arrested with gang enhancements in, this, in a particular county are Latino, for example, uh, they have, uh, uh, let's say 95% of those arrested for, with gang enhancements on auto burglaries are Latino. Well, the defense attorney then has the opportunity to say, hey, wait a second, I'm, let, let's at least have a judge make a ruling as to whether race played a role as to whether gang enhancement was added to that charge. If the judge decides that that is true, that, that that's, that was enough of a factor, then they can get rid of that enhancement. Now, the person still is held accountable for the auto burglary. This is not allowed about letting anyone off the hook. It's about recognizing systemic racism in our system. And the reality is that, that the systemic racism that does exist, the burden to get rid of it should not be on the accused. It should be on the government. 
And that's what the Racial Justice Act says. And it actually allows for a fair shot when it comes to dis disparate sentencing, arrests, convictions. At least let's be honest about our system. Let's not just go out in the streets and hold up banners and rally. Let's actually do something about systemic racism uh, in our uh, state. And so this yeah, was the bill that didn't get a hearing, but did get one um, after um, the mass protests. We were able to bring it back up again in the Senate, and it got off the floor of the Senate and Assembly within about five hours of each other on the last day of session. Sweet guy, huh? Um, that's an interesting point you bring up about the gang enhancement. I guess for our listeners at home, like what's the difference uh, in a gang enhancement charge uh, versus that being added or, or not added? Um, yeah, I mean, it can literally add several years um, to your prison sentence. And so uh, it also can have uh, gang registration. Uh, the, so there's a lot. Of, and then it also has an impact on your parole status, has an impact on your ability to get a job later on. And so um, we know that some of the factors that are used uh, to put someone on the gang list or add a gang enhancement are things that certain communities are just going to suffer through generally. Like, do you know someone right. that's in a gang? Do you have a family member that's in a gang? People in the neighborhood that are in a gang, right? But we also right. know that, that the gang enhancement predominantly looks at a black and Latino accused to, to attach gang enhancements. So even if an individual does happen to be in a gang, even if that conduct did not lead to whatever that indiv individual incident is, they'll add that enhancement. And so it can lead to several more years in prison. And again, all those other um, negative consequences. You know, it's amazing. I just remember, you know, my first year of law school and actually learning criminal law and just being like, wow, I like, I'm so lucky that, you know, I didn't have a misstep because, you know, some mm -hmm. of this, things are just so slight like you just mentioned I, yeah. you know another one was the felony murder rule which you yep. guys took care of a, a couple of years ago mm -hmm. but yeah uh, one misstep can cost you you know you know 10 20 30 years in prison uh whereas you know something else might you know they might just get a uh you know parole so uh, yeah. or probation sorry so it's, well the whole idea that kids will be kids and giving people a second chances is not applied uniformly to everyone and we know that race plays a dramatic role as to who it does apply to. And so whether it's a juvenile case or young adults, um, you know, sometimes if, if someone's 18, 19, 20 years old, do you want the rest of their life to be completely ruined and dictated by something they did at 18 or 19? Or do we want to actually look at them and say, you're redeemable, that, that you're worth something, that, right. you know, we're going, to look, we're going to look at the value that you have beyond that one incident and actually bring resources around you that support you so you could be um, successful in your life and contribute to society and not be uh, it, this drain by being in prison that we all end up paying for. Exactly. Um, uh, kind of another topic I wanted to get into with you was, you know, as chair of the labor committee, um, you know, it's been a lot of uh, exciting times <laughs> in labor, uh, usually uh, with AB5 and kind of the startup of tech. And here you are in San Jose, uh, where a lot of this tech is happening. Um, and it's kind of, you know, they call it disruptive technology for a reason, and it's kind of disrupting the labor market. Um, can you kind of talk about, I guess, as your role as labor chair and how you're seeing these new technology start up and, and kind of disrupting this employer-employee, uh, you know, sure. foundation we have, and I guess how, how you see it playing out in the future? Yeah, um, hold on a second, I just want to make sure my microphone may have, uh, okay. Hopefully that's a little bit better, but anyway, can you hear me? 
Yeah. Okay. <laughs> anyway, yeah. I mean, it's like we, we, San Jose calls itself the capital of Silicon Valley. But as I said earlier, no, it is a tale of two valleys. Um, and absolutely, tech can disrupt and, and innovation is something that has moved our world ahead in so many ways. But we also have to recognize that just using a software platform, for example, um, to take away basic labor rights, uh, that's not innovative or new. And you know, that's not disruption, that's deception. And so we have to be very careful about how much we're going to kind of bow down to the altar of tech as if somehow um, you know, they're somehow saviors of it in any sense. At the end of the day, it comes down to labor and capital, you know, and, and who's doing the work and who's getting compensated for it. Are those doing the work, getting the compensation that they deserve and is required by law or not? And ultimately, uh, the amount of wealth being created, is it being redistributed in our society in a way that's good for public policy, in a way that's moral or not? And so I think that there's so much more that we need to do to level the playing field, not so that everyone has the same amount, but that there's opportunity for everyone to be able to be successful and that people aren't taken advantage of. You know, that this is not uncommon. We saw the, you know, the late 19th century with you know, the oil barons and the train, you know, the, the railroad industry right. and banking industry. Same thing was happening back then. This is a repeat, but it's with the tech industry because they have so much more control, even more so in many ways, uh, control of our lives. And so people don't want to disrupt that because like, well, I like my tech. I like this, that, and the other. I like having stuff delivered by Amazon, but we need to care about the Amazon worker in the warehouse. We need to care about the person that's working for DoorDash, delivering food at our front door, or the one that's giving us rides around town. Um, we, we need to care about them just as much as we have to care about the farm worker, or the grocery store worker, or the nurse, um, and the firefighter. And so it's great to say, you know, oh, flexibility and gig work and all that. But at the end of the day, is the worker being taken advantage of? And I believe that they are. And, um, you know, we, we have to be very careful about what kind of society that we're, we're creating. You know, it's a very interesting point because I guess when these kind of disruptive technologies came in, you know, they unset, you know, cab drivers and, and different types of businesses that were a lot more expensive. And now mm -hmm. everyone likes these rideshare apps because they're more convenient and they're cheaper. Um, and people forgot about, you know, the cab drivers and these other businesses and, and, you know, talking to countless Uber drivers and, and other companies, um, you know, they don't seem to make a minimum wage or uh, close to that. So I think that's a, a very interesting point um, you bring up there. Um, can you kind of talk to us about like, you know, how did you get into to labor and, and representing this committee, um, given your background in kind of being a public defender? We lost you, Ash. How's it sound now? Nope, perfect. Okay, sorry. I think I accidentally hit a button there, but um, <laughs> it's interesting because a lot of elected officials who are pro-union or endorsed by unions will have some story about how, yeah, my father was a truck driver, my you know, grand grandparent was a teacher, or my mother, you know, or what, what, you know, worked for this one union, whatever. I don't have that. <laughs> That's not my background. I'm, I'm right. my family's from India. I, I didn't really grow up in a, in a union household, although it's a very hardworking household. And I am proud to be the first Indian American in the legislature and, and bring that experience 
and that unique cultural aspect to, to my, my work. But it's really just about humanity. You know, I, I'm a very principled, I like to believe principled leader. Um, I, I, I'm a values-based leader. And if you're values-based, then you believe in collective bargaining. You believe in the value of work. And I, I deeply believe in the value of work and, and, the, and the voice of the workers. Uh, and there's no doubt we've seen such a slant against workers over the last 30 to 40 years. I've uh, seen it very clearly in Silicon Valley and throughout our nation. And so I, I don't think that you have to have a very direct labor link to understand the value of labor and of unions, especially if you do your homework and, and read up on our history. I mean, our country uh, and our economy grew in, 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 and our middle class grew in such a, a profound manner as unions were increasing in membership. And then you know, in the 80s come around and there's a very concerted effort to go after private sector and then public sector unions. And we've seen wages flat, we've seen uh, American um, workers be as productive as, as anyone in the world, and yet they're struggling to survive. Minimum wage, I mean, at least here in California, we've had a chance to increase it somewhat, but you know, for folks to be making seven, eight bucks an hour for their work, um, it's inhumane. You know, coming from, I guess, uh, you, you know, your Indian background um, and, and your various studies, uh, you seem to have, I guess, developed a, a tremendous empathy for the working people and, and people who are kind of struggling through life. I guess, where, where do you think you, I guess, you developed this and kind of what, what kind of pushes you forward to kind of keep, keep representing and pushing this? That's this a good focus? question. You know, I, it's, I always think back when I was younger. I remember I was about eight years old and I went to India and I remember seeing little boys that looked just like me coming up to me, begging me for money. And I thought, when I need something, I just ask my parents. It's kind of, it was, it was just an awakening to some extent. And it wasn't as much where I felt, I did definitely a feeling like I felt lucky, but I also felt an obligation. Like I don't, I didn't do anything to deserve whatever life I have. Uh, and so I always felt obligated to really think about the needs of others, to to really think about what other people are going through. Uh, and so that's always been kind of a, a cornerstone of my work, or at least how I think about it. And my, my motto in my public service is just, it's a simple two words uh, to reduce suffering. So if I can do things to reduce suffering, then I think I'm doing my work in a way that I can be proud of and I think upholds my values and principles. So, you know, over the years, I've just read a lot about those that have done service and how selfless they've been. One of my, you know, my favorite American is Frederick Douglass and, and just what an extraordinary um, human being and role model he is for anyone that wants to do service. But, um, but we have plenty of other examples throughout our history of, of people that have sacrificed and many whose names we'll never know. And it's for right. all of them that I try my best to, to really focus on, on what is going to truly um, uplift our community in a way that um that's meaningful interesting um you know obviously COVID 19 has kind of taken over the the country the world um but you know in the state of california we're kind of stuck in this kind of middle of you know economies kind of open um you know schools aren't really open yet yeah. uh and here we are about six seven months into this now Kind of what, what's your critique to, the, to our response to COVID-19? And I guess, how do you see us pulling out of this? So, yeah, I mean, we had the first death in the nation here in Santa Clara County. And, and I really give credit to our county. Our county was the first to do a, a shelter at home order 
in the nation um, is here in Santa Clara County, uh, Dr. Sarah Cody and uh, as our public health officer uh, did the right thing. And so I think what's mistakes and what's been frustrating is other parts of the state that aren't being guided by science <laughs> where, where uh, politics is, is having too much of an impact. It's not easy politically for anyone to say, hey, we have to stay at home and businesses can't open yet. But you know, we are starting to see our businesses open now uh, here in Santa Clara County. And, and I, for one, feel way safer now going to them than if they had opened two months ago. Uh, and so I, I think that what could have been done better is that you know, the county is really focused on the science and made decisions based purely on the science. Uh, I, I think that the, you know, the governor has done a good job, his team has done a good job in terms of setting, okay, this is where we are, these are the numbers, this is the reality, this is the science. You know, I'm not trying to be you know, difficult to the business community or you know, keep schools closed, but at the end of the day, we have to follow the science. And so I think that if more people, uh, if more um, communities around our state follow the science, we'd be in a better place than we are right now. Uh, and the only other is issue that really, the other big issue that comes to mind is, is EDD and getting help to our people faster. Uh, I think that we, we should have and could have gotten ahead of that sooner. Um, a lot of us, myself included, a lot of legislators have raised the alarm on that on more than one occasion. Uh, it seems to be moving better now uh, because of that concerted effort. But that, I think that that was something that, again, our state's never been through this before, the volume of unemployment claims uh, is more than you know, dozens of individual states combined. So I'm not gonna blame anyone for, for or, or fault them because the amount of the volume, but I do think that we could have done things much earlier, um, much uh, in, in a much more comprehensive manner, but we're, we're getting there now. Right. You know, I guess COVID-19 is gonna have a, an effect on the state you know, going forward. And I guess as one of the more progressive members of the legislature, and are, are you looking at some, I guess, unique or outside of the box ideas on, I guess, you know, bringing forward to the budget process next year, kind of dealing with, I guess, some of these big issues we've been talking about, whether it's healthcare, prison systems, et cetera. Um, do you see some of your kind of, you know, thoughts or processes kind of helping bringing us out and kind of helping the state move forward? I mean, there's so many things we need to work on. Um, you just saw recently, we weren't able to get the plastics bill you know, through a legislature that's made up of three quarters Democrats. So we have a lot of work to do. I have some environmental bills that, that didn't make it, including my bill this year, AB 3030, to preserve 30% of our um, land and water by 2030. I plan on continuing to fight for that. Uh, but I think there's a wide range of things we need to do in terms of even family leave, we barely able to, to get uh, the family leave bill off the floor. And that was just family leave that people are paying into. It doesn't cost the employer Right. You know, money, but uh, the, so there's a lot more we have to do on worker protection, on on catching up to the rest of the world in terms of family leave, in terms of um, making sure we're actually not just talking about taking care of families, but we actually create an environment that is pro-family. Um, Health care, I think the COVID crisis has made it very clear that single pair is the way to go. The fact that people have health care attached to their place of employment is a broken system. Uh, and, and so we have to do far more on healthcare uh, and continue our work on criminal justice. There's so much more work to do. And so I don't know quite yet what, we'll, what I'll be bringing next year, whether it's through the budget process or through legislation, 
but I know uh, that, uh, that uh, we're going to look at some big, bold ideas and um, not, not um, be shy about it. You know, one of my favorite parts of, of this quarantine and shelter in place has been uh, watching you cook for your dad and <laughs> kind of share uh, what you're having on Instagram. Yeah. Um, can you kind of tell us about kind of your vegan culinary skills yeah. and, uh, you know, how your dad has rated your food lately? So, you know, so since he's uh, uh, has to stay at home and, and I'm here at home with him, he, he has no choice but to like my food. But, but I will say this, he's told me because he's diabetic, but his blood sugar level has gone down over the last few months. So that, that feels good because I know that if it's good for him, it's obviously going to be good for my blood sugar and everything too. But right. the, it's been great because I've, 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 known, I've always known how to cook Indian food. I just don't do it regularly enough. Now I, I'm in a routine where I can just whip something up and um, I think it tastes good and it, it, it's definitely healthier, all fresh ingredients. And so it's been fun. <laughs> You know, my favorite was when you made him the peanut butter and jelly, mm -hmm. and he said he'd, he'd never had one before. I yeah, <laughs> I never thought about that because again, I love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Right. I, I ate them growing up, but I guess it makes sense. Like, it's like you know, when I'm eating it growing up, you know, that's like kids' food, so he's not eating the same thing, and he didn't eat it growing up, and so um, it's it's actually, I mean, it's still well, still one of my favorite snacks. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. So, was your dad not not vegan uh, before? I guess you started cooking for him. Uh, he's veg he's vegetarian. He's still vegetarian, although I'm cooking vegan. And, and frankly, Indian food is very easy to cook vegan. 90% of the time, it's already vegan. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, it doesn't, he's not missing anything in that regard. He still has, on occasion, some milk with his tea. And, uh, but it's, I would say he's probably 95% vegan at this point right now. Wow, nice. Um, and, you know, just clear, clear one more thing up for me. Um, why is the the Indian food in, in places like New Zealand and in England so much better than it is here? <laughs> well, I, will, I, I don't know about New Zealand. I have had Indian food in London, and it's amazing. And I think they, you know, they, they have um, quite a few years on us. Uh, when the British colonized, they brought Indian cooks over to, uh, to, to, to Britain way back in the 1700s. And so... Um, they have neighborhoods that have been around for a couple hundred years. And that's when you get the real down-home cooking, you know, even right. in the restaurants. And so we are just, we're still a growing community here, but you're starting to see more and more authentic Indian places open up. Like over here, especially in Silicon Valley, you go up and down El Camino Real from San Jose to Mountain View, you'll find a bunch of Indian restaurants that are better than anything we had 20 years ago, for sure. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, Ash, thank you so much for spending the time and joining us today. And, sure. and keep posting those, uh, those recipes. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Well, thank you so All much. Right. Thanks, Ash. Right, take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks for watching another episode of Sacktown Talks. Make sure to like and subscribe on our YouTube page and rate or review where you listen to the podcast. Thanks to our producers, Phil and Vernon, and we'll be back to you tomorrow. Some are called dreamers. Hay que darle vida, hay que darle vida. No puedes estar así como tú pensás.